chapter 10, verse 11. Now we get into the narrative. We're now making our 11-day journey to Kadesh Barnea. So they are Mount Sinai, either here or here. We don't really know. And they're going to make an 11-day journey to this region up here in the Sinai Peninsula. They are on their way to the Promised Land. Finally, after four generations of the patriarchs and 400 years in Egypt (laughs) and one year at Mount Sinai, they are finally ready to receive the blessing. That's amazing. 400 years plus. They've been waiting for God to fulfill his promise, the promised land, the thing that they want more than anything in the entire world, to have their own land, to be their own people. Now, we don't really get how powerful of a desire that is, but go talk to a refugee, and that might give you a little inkling of what it's like to not have your own home, your own sense of belonging. Like I said, I mean, you know, it seems weird, like, oh, it's just a house, it's just a land. But remember, we are taken from the land to have a metaphysical connection to the land. There is something powerful to having a house, to having a land of your own. That is not the American dream that has been built into us by our Creator to be connected to a land, a home that is ours. And that, and especially in the Bible, that what makes it even greater, more special, is that it's shared with Yahweh that Yahweh and us both live in that house. And that's the idea that Deuteronomy is going to present too. And so they are finally going to go there and experience this. So verse 11, On the twentieth day of the second month, in the second year, the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle of testimony. So the Israelites set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai, and the clouds settled in the wilderness of Paran. First step. This was the first time that they set out on their journey according to the commandment of Yahweh by the authority of Moses. The standard of the camp of Judah, Judaites, set out first according to their companies, and over his company was the Nahashalon, son of Ammonah. So these are the leaders of each tribe. Verse 18, he lists the leaders of the next camp, and then he lists the leaders of the next. So, verse 29, Moses said to Hobab, son of Ruel, the Midianite Moses' father-in-law. So remember, this guy goes by many names. Jethro, Ruel, Hobab. These are all different names. So Hobab is the son of Ruel. The idea is that maybe Ruel might have died. And so now his son has taken the headship over the tribe. Now remember, um, back in Exodus 16, 18, Exodus 18, Ruel or Jethro, his father-in-law, comes back to see him after the exodus out of Egypt, and he is amazed about everything he's seen and everything he's heard. At that point, Moses tells him everything has happened. I mean, you take this cowardly man who's like, I don't want anything to do with Yahweh, and 11 months later, he's the leader of a nation in the most incredible faith that anybody has ever seen in Yahweh. That's going to get your father-in-law's attention, okay, who just let out an exodus. At that point, Ruel put his faith in Yahweh and became a believer in Yahweh. And he said, oh, I'm going to go back home. And Moses says, no, 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 stay with us. And he says, no, I, I believe with you, but i got to go back to my people and that kind of stuff. So now we come here to Ruel's son. So this would be uh, Moses' brother-in-law. Um, so we are, Moses says, we are journeying to the place about which Yahweh said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will treat you well, for Yahweh has promised good things for Israel. 
But Hobab said to him, I will not go, but I will, inst- will go instead to my own land and my own kindred. Moses said, Do not leave us, because you know places um, for us to camp in the wilderness, and you could be our guy. And if you come with us, it is certain that whatever good things that Yahweh will favor us, will with, we will share with you as well. So they traveled from the mountain of Yahweh three days' journey, with the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh was traveling before them during the three days' journey to find a resting place for them. So basically, Moses is saying, you're believers like us, which means you're a part of our community like us. And so I want you to stay with us because God has promised blessings for the community. And if you stay in the community of like-minded people, then you'll receive those blessings too. And Hobab agrees. Now, the people who will descend from him are called the Canaanites. Okay, and this is important for you to understand because the Canaanites are going to show up in the story of Barak of Judges chapter 4 and 5. The Canaanites are going to show up again with Saul when he's defeating the Amalekites. They're going to keep showing up. And they're in the land, and you're going to be really confused why God has commanded them to kill everybody in the land that's not an Israelite, but they're always protecting the Canaanites. And the reason they're protecting the Canaanites is because the Canaanites are not a part of the Canaanites. They're not marked for judgment because the Canaanites are the descendants of Ruel who put his faith in God, and they've all kept that faith. And so you need to understand that. It's also very important to understand how Sisera the general dies in Judges because he dies at the hand of a Canaanite, Jael. And so understanding who the Canaanites are, these descendants of Moses' brother-in-law, is very important to understand what's going on later and other books of the Bible. So, um, just put in the back of your mind somewhere, Canaanites, descendants of Moses' um, family-in-laws, if that's even a word. Is it the same as the Midianites? No. The Midianites were a bigger group of people, and Canaanites were a subgroup of them. And so, yes, he was a Midianite, but he was also Kenite. Okay, just like I'm an American, I'm Ohioan, I'm a Colombian, <laughs> Columbusite, uh, we, we, we all, I'm a Bakker, we all just have different things that we would connect ourselves to, depending on what hierarchy you are in. They journey off, and he agrees to go with them. So we make it three days in, and it says in chapter 11, verse 1, when the people complain, it displeased Yahweh. What's so interesting is it was three weeks in when they started complaining the first time. So they didn't even get three weeks in. So the honeymoon is now over with. Welcome to reality. Yahweh's anger burned against them. So the fire of Yahweh burned among them and consumed some of the outer parts of the camp. When the people cried to Moses, he prayed to Yahweh and the fire died out. So he called the name of that place Taberah because there was a fire of Yahweh that burned among them. Now, this is important for you to understand. The people complained and complained and complained and complained and complained in the book of Exodus from chapter 15 through chapter 19. And every single time, God had great patience with them. It never said that he got angry. He never punished him. He never did anything. But now when they complain, it says his anger burned against them. If fire came out, he was angry, he punished them. What's the difference? They know him him now. This is important for you to understand. God does not deal with everybody the same. And he does not deal with you the same all throughout your life. 
in the same way that I don't deal with my children the same all throughout their life. I have very low expectations of my three-year-old. She doesn't know me very well. She doesn't know the world very well. She's testing the limits on what I will and will not do. Okay? And I will be very gracious and very patient with her. But as my chill, but my patience with my seven-year-old is far less. She knows me a lot better. She knows that I will follow through on discipline. She knows a lot more what's expected of her. And the same way that my patience with my high school students that I teach is even lower because they are now a couple years away from being adults and being on their own and being responsible for life. They've been in the world. They know what they expect, especially if they grew up in the church. And you hold people to a higher standard as they get to know you, the world, the expectations of God more, as in an and your patience for people who blatantly disobey you over and over and over again gets less and less and less because they're testing you more and more. And this is why people who constantly sin in horrific ways are given grace. But a Moses who later in the book of Numbers just makes one mistake, it's kicked out of the land because he knows God better than anybody in the history of mankind ever has, according to the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy. And this is also why you can come to somebody, see, a lot of people misunderstand Gideon too, because they don't get, they're like, well, God's not punishing Gideon. Well, God punishes Moses harshly because Moses knows better. When he comes to Gideon, Gideon says, I've heard of this God, Yahweh. I've heard the stories but I don't know where he is and I don't know what he's like. And so when he disobeys God, God is more patient with him with the fleece and all that kind of stuff because Gideon doesn't know God very well. He's an infant in his understanding of Yahweh. And his lack of understanding of Yahweh has more to do with the failure of his parents than does for his own life because dad is the leader of the Baal worship in the village. And so don't think like, oh, You've got to pay attention to where people are in their relationship with God and what their track record of obedience or disobedience is before you can take how God acts with them and translate it into your own life. We make a very big mistake when we say, well, that's how God dealt with them, so that's how he's going to deal with me. And you can either make the mistake of thinking he's a horrible, harsh God who is just here to wipe you out, or he's this willy-nilly God that just lets everything go. Because you don't understand where that person is in their relationship with God. In fact, Gideon's story is a progression of disobedience, of testing, 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 until eventually he destroys his entire people in his village because he just wouldn't stop. And so the reality is they now know better. They had just come out of Egypt. A lot of them had no relationship with Yahweh. Now it's one year later, they have the law, they've agreed to the law, they've seen the parting of the Red Sea, they've seen the plagues, they've seen God provide water and bread for them, they've seen God forgive them, they've cleansed the tabernacle, they've experienced His grace, they were supposed to all die, and Moses kept that from happening, and now they're all in the favor of God. God has declared them, and He gives them this blessing of His graciousness. And three days later, they start complaining. This is an 18-year-old who hasn't appreciated anything that you have done for them in their entire life. And they've taken everything for granted. And you're done. And, and God's not going to kick them out of the house, nor should you. But your, your tolerance is very low. And rightfully so. And that's what God is dealing with here. He sends them out to punish them. Now, verse 4, the mixed multitude. What does that mean? 
The mixed multitude is going to start showing up a lot now. This is the Egyptians and the Israelites. Because remember, everybody is considered an Israelite by faith. They prove that faith through the animal sacrifice in the Passover meal and by leaving through their salvation through the Red Sea and they're saying yes to the covenant. So technically, everybody is an Israelite. But some are ethnically descendants of Abraham and some are ethnic descendants of Egypt. And so that's why they're called a mixed multitude. Whenever Israel is doing what they're supposed to do, they're called Israel. Whenever they're disobeying, they're called the mixed multitude. And the idea, once again, is like, your son just did this. And the idea is no son of mine would ever act like that. That's not my genetics. Okay, and that's the idea. They're Israelites when they're showing faith, because that's what makes you an Israelite. But they're the mixed multitude when they're not showing faith, because there is no unity in the covenant with God. They're a mixed mult, mult, um, motley crew. The now the mixed multitude who were among them craved more desirable foods. And so the Israelites wept again and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we used to eat freely in Egypt and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now we are, dry, we are dried up and there is nothing at all before us except for this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed and the color was like color of bedlam. And the people went out and gathered it and ground in the ground and it was mills and po- grounded it and with mills and pounded it in mortars and they baked it in pans and made cakes of it and tasted it like fresh olive oil. And when they drew, um, the dew came down on the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. So basically in the last year, they've gotten really creative. They are, they're making manna cakes and manna pie and manna <laughs> bread and, and manna, like everything. And that's what he's saying. And remember it's saying that this manna tastes like, this bread tastes like honey. It's got a really deep, rich honey flavor to it. Now, like, that's what you spend good money to buy at the grocery store for. But they're like, we're sick and tired of this. They're like, after an entire year, this is all we've been eating. We want variety. I want a buffet, okay? I want to be able to go in and pick anything that I want. I want to be an American. So they're (laughs) tired of the lack of variety. They're tired of the lack of variety, which only in America do we have variety. You go to other countries, it's not, Europe a little, but you go to other countries, the variety is just not there. So Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families and everyone in the door of his tent. And when the anger of Yahweh was kindled greatly, Moses was also displeased. And Moses said to Yahweh, why have you afflicted your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of this entire people on me? Now notice Moses is not mad at God for not taking care of him. Moses is mad at them. Why do I have to be the leader of these people? Okay? Why have you shown me such disfavor by putting me over these people? I wanted good people. (laughs) Okay, I voted for the different group. And that's what he's complaining about. This is too much of a trial for me. I can't handle this. And then Moses says this, Did I conceive this entire people? Did I give birth to them that you should say to me, carry them in your arms and foster the father? Like, I'm the babysitter. This isn't fair. From where shall I get meat to give to these entire people? For they cry to me, give us meat. Now we're starting to see a little lack of faith of Moses. Now, I don't think this is a lack of faith of Moses totally in that he doesn't believe that God can't provide for him. I think this is a Moses who feels very overwhelmed. 
Because Moses will go to God. He is going to God right now. He's not trying to do this on his own efforts, like, oh my gosh, we've got to call Kroger and all this kind of stuff and see how many people we can get. He's not like saying, oh God, this is horrible. He's going to God with all this. And this is an important thing that you must understand. With, this is the point that the Psalms and the prophets are making, one of many, is that they're complaints. They complain all the time in the Psalms. Okay? More than 60% of the Psalms are laments, and lament just means crying out. I mean, sometimes they're, they're, the, 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 the cries are like, God, where are you? You're not doing anything. It'd be better for me to die. But God, these are psalms. They're in the scriptures. And the point that God is making is, it's okay for you to have doubts. It's okay for you to say, I can't do this. It's okay to even complain against God. It's even okay to sometimes accuse him as long as you're going to him. And you're laying that at his feet. Because the reality is, this is what you feel. You can't help the way that you feel. And it doesn't do you a good to feel all this doubt and distrust and where are you, God? And then go into God and say, oh, precious God, how great all that are. Because you're faking it. That's not a real relationship. And so what God, God doesn't, he says, bring me your distress. Bring me your fears. Bring me your burdens. And right now, I don't trust you, God, is your burden. It's one thing to go to somebody else and say, I'm done with God. I don't trust him and start. It's another thing to go to God and say, I don't trust you right now. Help me. Help my unbelief. As that one guy said, I forget who it was, but in the gospel says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like, I'm here, but at the same time, I don't really know how this is going to happen. And that's what Moses is doing. Because God is the only one who can take that and transform you. Don't be ashamed of what you're feeling. Don't hide it. Because if you're ashamed and you hide it, then you don't have an authentic relationship with God. Nothing will change. But if you bring all that crap that you're feeling, as unbiblical, as ungodly, as horrific as it might be, and you lay that at the feet of God, then you surrender to him and he will do a powerful transformation in your life. And that's what makes these guys amazing. I mean, the prophets go to God and say, I want to die. I'm done with this. But they say it to God. He's the only one that can handle it. He's the only one that can take care of it. He's the only one that can change you. And so Moses is very authentic here. He could be out there with complaining and say, that's right, let's take him down. Because that's what they're doing. But instead he's going to God and saying, please help me. This is how I feel. These are not my people. I didn't want to lead them. But I'm here. And I'm before your feet. Help me. That's what it means to be authentic relationship with God. And we've done a serious disservice when almost all of our prayers in the church are these. I think there should be a time and a place in the church where we just say it out loud without any fear of public condemnation. And I'm not saying all the time in every private intimate moment, but... Sometimes the church feels that way. I mean, there are imprecatories in the Bible. Imprecatory is when you're, this is the part when David says, I hate them. I want you to bury them alive and get rid of all their children. You're like, oh, okay, that's divinely inspired. (laughs) But David is bringing that to God. And he's saying, I want you to do this to God. And then he ends with the praise and says, God is sovereign and he will do what is good. Because now he's gotten off. There's a time and a place for that. And if we prayed more like that as a community, I'm not saying every Sunday. I mean, we've got to be selective. But if our children could see that at times, 
there might be less of a complaint of our inauthenticity when we talk about having a Christian life. Because a lot of times we get the impression that everybody has it together. And the Psalms don't communicate that image of the life of a believer. They communicate the life of a believer, of everything in their life falling apart, but they're going to a good God who can take care of it. And that's the image that we need to present more often. And like I said, let's not pendulum swing too far and just like that's all we do all the time. But at the same time, like that's very much lacking. And so Moses does this. He goes to God and good, bad, and ugly, he throws all of his feet. And the thing that you commend Moses for is he's at the feet of God and not somebody else. 